Morning, friends. Let's continue in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you will speak to us this morning from your word. Help us to think about how we might serve you in our lives. And Father, help us to honour Christ in all that we do. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the 17th of December 2013, an auspicious day in church history, uh, at least for me. Uh, That was the date of my ordination to the priesthood in the Church of England. Uh, we, we call it uh, the Presbyterate. Uh, it took place in a little chapel in a small town called Ely, north of Cambridge, a 13th century chapel in the old Bishop's Palace. Very small congregation. Uh, my family made up uh, a large proportion of that, which is not unusual when my family goes somewhere where normally... <laughs> Uh, Gerald Bray was there. I can't see if he's here this morning, but he was there on that day. Is he here? No. Ah, we'll note that down as an absentee. Um, and uh, Will and Lizzie, were, they were planning to be there, but they got caught in traffic, so they went to the pub instead, which probably had a similar gravitas uh, to the occasion. Uh, Gerald actually prayed Uh, on the day and he prayed for more college and for Mark and for the faculty and students and uh, for the students whom I would teach. Uh, So all of you were prayed for on the 17th of December 2013 even though uh, you didn't know it until now. I can't remember exactly what he prayed, probably for uh, you know long-suffering grace and forbearance under the lectures. I I can't remember exactly but um, you were prayed for Uh, But the question that that raises uh, for us as we think about that occasion is what was the point? What's the point of ordination? What did it mean? What did it uh, begin in terms of ministry? What changed? Did something change? Uh, What was it all about? And this is not an abstract question because... Many of us here are heading towards ordination. Some have an ordination uh, coming up in just a few weeks. Uh, Some uh, are planning to be ordained in the years to come. Some are thinking about ordination, either Anglican ordination or in another denomination, or I guess being set aside for a particular Christian ministry. What does it involve? Why would we do it? Uh, What is at stake They're very important questions for us to think about as a college community. And our passage from Exodus uh, is going to be our launch pad to think about them. We have been in the book of Exodus in our lectionary readings. And as I heard the uh, reading from Luke about Zacchaeus today, I thought, why are we doing Exodus Uh, again? Well, it's because part of the reason is because I don't think I've ever heard sermons on these sections of Exodus 27, 28, 29, and at least, at least we can say, well, that's the best sermon I've ever heard on Exodus 29. (laughs) Um, So we're in Exodus 29. We began in Exodus 27 a couple of weeks ago. Mission Awareness Week, of course, was in between. And uh, we picked up there, which is in this section from 25 to 31. It's about the tabernacle. God's dwelling place, and we were talking first of all about the structure and about tabernacle furniture, and really about the importance of God dwelling with his people. This was the whole point in in Exodus 17, verse 7. Remember, the people said, will God dwell with his people or not? And God, in Exodus 25, verse 8, says, build me a sanctuary, I will dwell with my people. 
And we talked about how this dwelling was a great blessing. It reminds us of way back at the beginning uh, in Genesis, God dwelling with his people, but of course it points forward. And we remember John chapter 1, verse 14, when the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And then when he ascended, he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in us. And of course, all of this points forward to that new Jerusalem, that great dwelling. Uh, Revelation 21, verse 3, God says, Now my dwelling will be with my people. Uh, Verse 22, there's no need for a temple in the new Jerusalem because God is there. That wonderful experience of the presence of God with his people. Exodus 27. Then in chapter 27, verse 20, we kind of moved from the structure of the tabernacle to the, the people. Uh, and there's a ch- change in nomenclature. You might have noticed as we were doing our lectionary readings from tabernacle to tent of meeting. Uh, actually, the people and meeting with God is important. We're introduced to Aaron and his sons and the priesthood. And then in chapter 28, uh, we, get, we, we ask the question, uh, what should ministers wear? Um, now, I know that it was just the men over in Cash Chapel who heard a sermon on this, but you all should have uh, read the passage and been thinking through as we learned about the ephod and the breastplate and the uh, robe and the sash and the turban. You remember these things? Uh, and you thought, wow, that's what I should be getting my, my gear on. Of course, no, you don't have to rush out to Whipples and get a whole kind of vestiture. Because, of course, all of these things were pointing towards the righteousness that was needed to engage with God. And that is the righteousness, of course, that Christ clothes us with as uh, we become followers of him. Uh, And so uh, we have this righteousness, clothed in righteousness divine, as Charles Wesley said, uh, as we trust in him, and that's what we... uh, we, we have that, so we don't need to wear special clothes, but the New Testament makes the point that we should become what we are. So we put off our old self and we put on righteousness. We, we dress ourselves in uh, holiness. So that was kind of uh, that. So, and then we get into chapter 29. And uh, we had the first part read for us by Mon. Uh, no, no, who, who read it? Elsie. Elsie read it. Sorry, Elsie. Um, Friday a week ago, it was a while ago, and uh, then the second part by Paul, just today. And we're talking about the consecration of these priests, the work that they're going to do. And it begins in in verse 1, Moses is told, this is all God talking to Moses about what should happen, Moses is told to get a young bull and and two rams without blemish and to bring them to consecrate Aaron and his sons as priests, get some... Uh, some loaves, thick loaves, thin loaves, bring them as well, bring them to the entrance to the tent of meeting. And uh, that's verses 1 to 3. And right there in the foreground are these animals. They're going to dominate the chapter. Then we kind of, from verses 4 to 9, we get this section where Aaron is brought and his sons and they're prepared. They're to wash, they're cleansed, they're clothed, they put on their, their threads uh, that they were uh, prepared for in uh, chapter 28. Um, of course, being a, a priest in Israel is a very dangerous job. You remember Leviticus chapter 10, Nabad and Abihu, uh, Aaron's sons. You get it wrong, it's, it's very dangerous. 
And like all dangerous professions, you need high visibility workwear. Um, so that's why they, they got these special clothes. People uh, could recognise them, you know, like um, construction workers or miners or whatever, wear high vis. Um, Cam Mason was wearing high vis on the touch football field yesterday. This fluoro yellow that um, so dazzled me that I was stunned and just he had to run past. I think <laughs> the referee should uh, put an end to it on the football field. But right here in Exodus, it's the right thing to wear. It shows their righteousness. So they get cleansed, they get clothed, they get anointed. Okay, And all of this is in preparation. This is not the main game. Okay, so having a bath and getting dressed and styling your hair with some oil, uh, that's just the beginning. And from that, that's to get them ready for their ordination, which begins in verse 10. And these animals are brought and they're slaughtered. First the bull. The bull is the sin offering. They lay their hands on it, then they slaughter it, then they burn it, then they burn the remains outside the, uh, outside the camp. Second of all, then there's the, the whole burnt offering, uh, verses um, 14 to eight, 15 to 18, right? Uh, a sign of, of dedication. They lay their hands on it, they slaughter it, they chop up the bits, they burn it, the whole thing. Uh, and then they have the ordination offering, uh, which we read in verse 22. So that runs from verses 19 through to verse 28. Uh, third, uh, the second ram, third offering, uh, and all of this is to atone for sin. Now, as I kind of read through those verses, it felt a little bit gruesome to me. Here's Gerald. Hi, Gerald. <laughs> Didn't mean to point that out uh, too publicly. Um, it felt a little bit gruesome to me, all this chopping up and sacrificing of animals. I, I remember when I was um, a university student over here at Sydney University doing first-year biology, uh, we had to do dissection and they would bring out these dead cats. They, they said they were stray cats from the area, which as an aside, if you have a cat, I'd keep it inside because you never <laughs> know what's going to happen. But we had these dead cats and me and my lab partner had to cut them up and I pulled out uh, you know, a scalpel to, to begin the work. I said, I kind of feel like I'm in the family business because my dad's a surgeon and my partner said, I feel like I'm in the family business. My dad's a butcher. And we had very different approaches to that kind of dissection. <laughs> but um, I, when you read through this section of Exodus 29, you're feeling like the butcher's on show, right? Chopping this up, chopping that up. And uh, there's some pre- fairly kind of splashing of blood around. Uh, verse 20, did you read that? Where they get the blood and they rub it on the, the right earlobe and the right thumb and the right toe of the high priest and the priest. I mean, what's... What's that about? Um, Or maybe it's got something to do with these people are going to be holy in whatever they hear, whatever they do, wherever they go. And then verse 21, they splash the blood on these brand new clothes that they've got, of course, to atone for the sin. It reminds me of Revelation chapter 7, the multitude that so many that no one can count, every nation, tribe, people and tongue, And uh, the angel says, verse 13, Who are these people dressed in white robes? You know, sir, these are those who have passed through the tribulation who have been washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Okay, These things in Exodus 29 are pointing forward to that righteousness. Uh, And then, of course, verse 33 sums up what's happened at the consecration and the ordination. Those two words are synonyms. 
Atonement has been made for sin. Uh, That's why they can now function. They're made holy to engage with God in the tabernacle, to represent the people. They've got them engraved on their heart and on their shoulders. We read about in chapter 28. Now they can engage with God. Uh, It goes on, uh, verse 38 Uh, So all this takes seven days to take place, quite a long ordination. I hadn't realised either when uh, I was thinking about this that the ordination person for the diocese would be in the front row while I talked about this. Seven days, I recommend that. Um, (laughs) Taking notes on what what should happen. Um, Lots of slaughtering of bulls each day. And then uh, verse 38, uh, they begin their task, their ministry. And morning and evening, they're to get a lamb, one year old, and they're to sacrifice it. That's what they're going to do. And uh, it begins, the ministry of the priests, Aaron and his sons. And then uh, right at the end there, uh, verses 45 and 46, uh, God says that, uh, so he will uh, dwell with his people, Israel, and be their God. They will know that he is God, who has brought them out of Egypt, so that he might dwell with them. I will be their God. And that those words actually echo exactly, well, they're very close to Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. Way before they've even had plagues in Egypt, God says that uh, he will do this so that he will be their God. They will know that, the God that's brought them out of Egypt. That's the point of all of this, is that God will be their God. So, what does this have to say about our ordinations? If you're planning on getting ordained or you've been ordained, you're weighing it up, do we spill lots of blood? Uh, animals splash ourselves with, bl- with blood and eat various parts and so on. Well, what it certainly cannot mean is that what is going on here needs to take place at our ordination. Atonement for sins. Okay? Uh, the, the sin offering, all of this has been pointing to, forward to a great sin offering, the great sin offering in Christ Jesus. And the New Testament uh, makes much of this, the once and for all nature. Uh, so, uh, you know, think of uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 19. It, it, he is a, a, a spotless lamb without blemish who has been offered not perishable things like gold and silver uh, that uh, were handed down beforehand. And what's that done? Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, it's made you a holy priesthood. You become holy when you put your trust in Jesus. You become a holy priest when you put your trust in Jesus. Uh, the ministry is not one of continual offering of sacrifices. Think of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Day after day, they offered sacrifices again and again. They offered these sacrifices that could not atone for sin. And then verse 14, but he offered once a sacrifice to make perfect forever those who are being made holy. All of these things point forward to Jesus. Uh, And even the same terminology is used in in the New Testament. Think of Ephesians 5 verse 2 where... Jesus is described as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Well, same terminology as uh, Exodus chapter 29, verse 18. What's happening in this 
atoning sacrifices. So what then of ordination? Is it a waste of time? Well, no. Uh, (laughs) You'll be glad to know. (laughs) Still got a job. The New Testament does talk about uh, ordination. Actually, the King James Version uh, translates about 30 different Hebrew and Greek words as ordain or ordination. Uh, So there's lots of scope, semantically, biblically. But think of Titus 1 verse 5, ordain elders in every town. Uh, Or think of Acts chapter 13, uh, at the beginning there where um, Paul and Barnabas uh, had hands laid on them, their commission set aside these people and they're sent off. Okay, this happens again and again in the New Testament. So while our being set aside is not for our atonement uh, and it doesn't establish us in a ministry of continual sacrifice because of the once and for all nature of what Christ has done for us. Nevertheless, there is a setting aside. What's the purpose? Uh, Well, it is to proclaim the greatness of Jesus Christ, that sacrifice. So Titus set aside elders for every town, uh, ordain elders in every town. Uh, Verse 9, they should be righteous people. They should hold firmly to the truth encouraging people with sound doctrine and refuting error. That's what ordination is for. It's a lifelong calling to that. The word ordain in Exodus 29, uh, literally it's to fill the hand. Sometimes it just means to fill or to fill the hand. And at your ordination, if you get ordained, uh, at my ordination, uh, the bishop laid his hands on me and then straight after praying for me there, Other people, Gerald, laid hands on me too. Uh, uh, My hand was filled. My hand was filled. What was it filled with? He gave me the Holy Scriptures. And he charged me, take thee and preach the word of God and administer the sacraments in the congregation. That's what my hand was filled with. The word of God, the riches of the gospel which we have to take to people. Now, I just... I want to say, if you're thinking about ordination or in whatever denomination or whatever ministry it might be, being set aside for this as a life work, don't take it lightly. Uh, If I can speak as perhaps thinking myself as one of the younger generation for a moment, um, I think we we can be flippant about things like this. Uh, There was someone in my year who was ordained and six weeks later changed, you know, denominations. Um, But I want to say stick with it. Sometimes it will become perhaps intolerable. Sometimes you you, you might have to leave. And there will be plenty of things that bug you, uh, frustrations, uh, particular people, processes and so on. I mean, when a bishop uh, of my denomination says that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it's scandalous, it's outrageous. I feel like throwing it all in and yet... I need to stick with it. I I made promises that I would preach the gospel. It was put in my hand that I would do that. And so until it becomes absolutely intolerable, bear with it. Uh, Today, 30th of July, I'm sure you remember what happened in 1540, um, the second year church history class will, Robert Barnes, the early English reformer, he was burned at the stake. Whenever I have frustrations with... Anglicanism, um, whenever I'm annoyed at the church, I'm 
belong to, I'm ordained in, and you might find it surprising that that would ever happen, but it does. Um, Whenever I feel burned by Anglicanism, I remember those who burned for Anglicanism. He was a Protestant reformer whose life was spent in order that we might have the blessings of the reading of the scripture in our language, the free proclamation of the gospel and so on that we enjoy. So, ordination. Uh, Now, one more thing just before we finish up. Uh, I realise it's 20 minutes and the assistant to the chapel master always gets cross if people go over 20 minutes. But one more thing. The thing that struck me like a shovel in the face as I read this passage last night, um, Moses is told by God to get... Aaron, a young bull. Now, what do you call a young bull? You call it a calf. He's up there on the mountain, told to get Aaron, a calf, to atone for his sin, a sin offering. And what is Aaron doing? Well, God is saying, get this calf to atone for his sin. He is making a golden calf for the people, for chapter 32, at the same time. And it struck me that In ministry, ordained ministry, it is very possible that the instrument of the ministry can actually turn into a God itself. Very possible that preaching the best sermon can become a God. That growing a great ministry can become a God for the minister. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing to grow a great ministry, but if it becomes a God, it is a thing that shipwrecks wrecks your faith and it has done it. You might dream of preaching to great crowds, quip women, Katoomba convention, whatever, you know, and that becomes your God. The calf that was supposed to be offered as a sacrifice for sin is being shaped into a golden statue at the same time. And so we need to ensure that we don't make a God of our ministry we remember that Jesus is God. 17th of December 2013, I was ordained uh, presbyter. 2nd of February 2008, I was ordained deacon. Down here at St Andrews, it was a swelteringly hot day. There were about 50 of us. Rob was there. And uh, uh, we were all dressed in our clobber, sweating it out. And the preacher was Rick Lewis who was then rector at Engadine, now Bishop of Armidale. And he was preaching on John chapter 3, John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus. And I remember lots about that sermon. The sweat dripped down. Um, The thing that has stuck with me most profoundly was when he got to chapter 3, verse 30, and John the Baptist says, He must become greater, Jesus must become greater, I must become less. And Rick said, that would be a good motto for your ministry. And I remember that so distinctly. Because if there is a remedy to our ministry becoming a God, it is making Jesus greater and us less. The one who is from above, verse 31 of chapter 3, is above all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that you call people into the ministry to be set aside for the proclamation of the gospel. We pray for those amongst us 
who are moving in that direction. We pray, Lord, that you will help them to remain faithful to their calling, to proclaim the riches of the gospel and to make Jesus great. And we pray these things in his precious name. Amen.